Well, take that Bible this morning and look over to John chapter 3. Uh, we're, we've been in our exposition of John 3, and I've just stopped for a few weeks here in that continuous exposition to exposit John 3.16. So there's so much there. We won't take this long normally, but I thought there was so much there that I thought it would be helpful. Look there at the truth in 16 and 17. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is a wonderful section of Scripture. Of course, we have been studying it in its context, looking all the way actually back. Remember there, if you look back at chapter 2, in verse 23, where it says in John 2, 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And so the text says that though many believed, Jesus himself was not entrusting himself to all because he knew that some followed him for the miracles. And as soon as chapter 2 finishes, we come right into chapter 3, and you'll recognize that opening phrase in 3.1. There was a man, there's the connection, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he was not entrusting himself to man, and Nicodemus is such a man. Now, it says there that he was a Pharisee, and we looked at that, which meant that he was highly religious. We said that there was only about 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Christ. We know from the text that he came at night. He clearly recognized that Jesus was from God, but at the same time, he was very confused. Look down at verse 4. He said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He was utterly confused. If you look down in chapter 3, verse 9, Nicodemus said to Christ, how can these things be? In other words, he didn't understand the doctrine of the new birth, which he should have from the Old Testament out of Ezekiel 36. And Jesus said to him in verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel? And remember we said there's a definite article there, the teacher of Israel. Some believe that he was the most preeminent Pharisee in all of Jerusalem at that time. I think I also mentioned to you that it, it, there is some historical record that would say Nicodemus was one of the three most wealthy Jews in, in all of Jerusalem. So when you begin to put it together, here's a man. Here's a religious man. Here's a ruler, we said. He's a member in John chapter 7 of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme court of Israel of that day. He is a wealthy man, but he does not understand the most basic thing about the doctrine of the new birth. And then from verse 11 down through 22, we said and noted that the dialogue turns into monologue by the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them about the serpent being lifted up. And he said, and we'll pick it up here in the text in verse 15, that whoever believes in him may in him have eternal life. And he's telling Nicodemus about eternal life. And so here is God's salvation made available to all. Now when you see that phrase, I think it must have shocked 
Nicodemus in verse 15. Whoever believes may in him, the direct object being Christ, have eternal life. Because I think Nicodemus, it was shocking to him because he thought salvation was only of the Jews. And so then you ask the question, why is God's salvation made available to all? And that's the next verse, verse 16. Here's the reason why it's made available to all. For God so loved the world. That's why whoever believes in him may in him have eternal life. And the reason is because God so loved the world. And then we begin to launch this short series on God so loved the world. And we've noted the last couple weeks that we are examining the key elements in the doctrine of salvation that displays God's sacrificial love for the world. And we looked at the last couple weeks, number one, at the source of salvation. Don't want to take too long here. Namely, that phrase, God so loved. He is the source of salvation. Going along with being born again, which is a work of God here in in terms of our salvation, He is the source of it. God the Father. And we took a week to look at that. And we took a week to look that He so loved the world. And here when it says so loved, the emphasis is on the astounding greatness of the gift. It would be as though we could say in the language, God so loved the world. Or He loved the world. You could even put it this way, to such an extent. Or you could say it this way, that God loved the world so intensely that He gave us His Son. So the source of salvation is God. Secondly, we looked at the scope of salvation. That he namely did not just love the Jewish people. He loved in 3.16 the world. And we went through that. He doesn't just love Israel. And if you weren't here, that would have been a couple weeks ago. You need to listen to that online. We talked about the five different kinds of love that are displayed. We spoke of, do you remember those? God's perfect love. Love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father. Then we spoke of His providential love that God has over all the world in His grace. Then we spoke about His particular love that God manifests in Scripture for the elect. And then we spoke of the provisional love that's for believers to stay in relationship with Christ. Not that we could ever lose our salvation, but that there is a love that's provisioned, if you will, based on our obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But the fifth kind of love, so important for you to hear that message, was God's passionate love for the world, where he loves the whole world. And so the scope of salvation is extended, is the gospel, as an invitation that is given to the world. Now, the focus that we have this morning is on the wonderful result of God loving the world, namely that he did not spare his only son. And so I bring you to this third element this morning on your notes is the sacrifice of salvation. The sacrifice of salvation. Look at the text again, and this is a familiar phrase to you. He so loved the world that he gave... His only son. Stop there just for a second. God the Father, you understand from the language here, so loved the world, in other words, so intensely, if you will, to such an extent that he gave, there you see it, his only son. 
God the Father so loved this world, so loved you, that He gave the greatest gift that could ever be given. He gave the the best gift that could ever be given. He gave His only Son, or His unique Son. Sometimes you hold in your hands a translation that says, only begotten Son. That's fine. The thought there is that He gave His one and only unique Son. Now, as, as we study this this morning, just for a few minutes, um, when you think about that phrase, he gave his only son, what is, what is in that statement in the text? What is in that statement? Well, just let me just highlight two crucial aspects in our Lord's life. In other words, he gave his son, but in what way did God give his son? Well, in two vital roles. Number one, he gave his son in the incarnation. In the incarnation. We have to just back up. I think our first thought is to, to think of his, te- of his death. That he gave his only unique and only begotten son. And we go immediately to the cross. But if you just backed up, certainly from John's gospel, he gave us his son in the incarnation. And obviously that's what Christmas season is all about. That that one who was in intimate fellowship from all eternity was sent into the world. Here, the Word, Jesus, became flesh. He became a human person. When we talk about God taking on flesh, or when Jesus took on flesh, we call that teaching the incarnation of Christ. What's amazing in John's Gospel is that 39 different times in his Gospel, it says that the Father has sent his Son into the world with a mission. And so he sent his son, but he sent him first at his incarnation. Look back just a couple chapters in chapter 1. You know these statements there in one one, when it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then that glorious statement, cast your eyes down on one fourteen, that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. There it is. Here he gave his son, and first he gave his son in his incarnation. The word became flesh. So beloved, God's love is expressed in the giving of his most priceless gift, his unique and only son. In fact, that word there, only, is the word uh, in the Greek monogenes, which again just means only begotten. In other words, beloved, he is utterly unique. He is, as our Lord Jesus Christ, without equal. There is no one like him. He is, in this giving, God in human flesh. In fact, time and time again in the Scripture, Jesus possesses the Father's very nature. In the words of his enemies, in John 5.18, he was making himself equal with God. It says in John chapter 10 that he and the Father are one And so they share the same nature while remaining a distinct persons, if you will. Jesus is God in the flesh. So, beloved, as you think of this Christmas season, God gave us what was most precious to him. He gave us his son. This is the testimony of Scripture. You remember in Galatians 4, 4, it says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. 
And so he gave us his son at this Christmas season that we celebrate. You remember back in the Gospel of Matthew and in other places when Jesus Christ was uh, transfigured before them. It says in Matthew 17 that a bright light and cloud overshadowed them. You remember there it says that a voice came out from the cloud. It was God the Father. And it says in Matthew 17, 5, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And God the Father said, listen to him. And I believe in the same way that he said that at the transfiguration. He would say that in the same way today, speaking from the word of God. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so it's his son. You remember when Peter was talking in his epistle in 2 Peter 1.17. And he was looking back to that event of the transfiguration. It said that in that event, Peter did that speaking of Christ, he received honor and glory from God the Father. And the voice was born to him by majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So listen, before we just go to that phrase and we think of the second piece of that component, recognize this, it ought to be a joyful time even for us this morning that God gave His beloved Son. That God the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. John 3.35 says it this way, that the Father loves the Son. That He's given all things into His hand. It says in John 5.20 that the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He is doing. It says, does Jesus in 15.9, that the Father has loved me. And so you realize this is a love relationship that goes back from all eternity. That the Father loved His Son. But in the greatest act of giving, He gives us His one and only unique, only begotten Son. And He gave Him first at His incarnation. Okay, But secondly, and you would think this, in John 3.16, when it says that He gave... His only son, it speaks secondly, as you would naturally think, of his crucifixion, okay? We sang one of the songs today, it spoke of that crucifixion. We know from Philippians chapter 2 that he became obedient to the point of, what? Death on a cross. And so he gave his only son, first at the incarnation, secondly at the crucifixion. Jesus himself said in John 15, 13, that greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. The Apostle John, the same writer here in this gospel, said in his epistle of 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this. And then John the Apostle said that he laid down his life for us. And so he gave his son first to come to the world and to enter into this world and to live a life that we never did in righteousness. And then his son would be lifted up on the cross for us at his crucifixion. Paul said in Colossians 1.19 that the fullness of God was pleased, if you will, to dwell in him and through him, Christ, to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so what a gift, beloved. God gives His only Son to be delivered up to a bloody death to to forgive you of your sin that we so richly deserved. 
I think we spoke of it a couple weeks ago, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, if you will, for our iniquities. In other words, you don't have to look further than that. God so loved the world that he gave his very best for you. He gave his very best that he would come and take on flesh and then Christ would be obedient to the point of death on the cross. I'm thinking of Isaiah 53 that all of us like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the what? The iniquity of us all. And so here he went obediently to his death. And Paul said in Romans 8.3 that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And then it says in Romans 8.3, he condemned sin in the flesh. He did that by dying in your place. So when you look down again at 3.16, and it says that he gave his only son, why does, why does the scripture, why does the word of God say his only son? Well, Certainly, he was his only son in that sense. But I think he wrote it there to remove all doubt that God loves us. In other words, you never have to doubt that. If you're here this morning as a young man, as a young woman, as a young couple, as a high school student, as a, as a junior high student, look no further than the text that says, God so loved the world, and you ask, how do I know that? Well, he gave his only son for you. Paul said it this way in Romans 8.32 that he did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. In other words, he so loved you that he didn't even spare what was most precious to him. Think back just for a moment, beloved. Think back to that account with Abraham that you know so well. That Abraham in his supreme devotion to God demonstrated his willingness to sacrifice his son and we know that. But now, God the Father, in a much more glorious manner, offered His only unique Son as the supreme manifestation of His, saying, of his staying love for sinners. He, he loves you, is the text saying. And so here, when it says that God gave, involves the wonder of both the incarnation, the wonder of the crucifixion. And listen, beloved, The extent of God's love is measured by the extent of God's gift. He gave his one and only son for us. This is how we know that God loves us. He gave his son to die for us. No wonder that the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9.15, he said, thank God for his gift that is indescribable. It's described as an indescribable gift. I think the ESV says his inexpressible gift. And so, beloved, here's the key elements. It's the source of salvation. The scope of salvation is the world. The sacrifice of salvation is that he gave his son in the incarnation and crucifixion. And now the fourth key element, we'll just call it the security of salvation. The security of salvation. Look again with your eyes at 3.16. It says that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Familiar statement to all of us. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
And you'll note there just a couple of things. It's whoever, I'll just highlight a couple of the words. Whoever believes in him. Now, what's fascinating there is that though God is sovereign in the new birth, we clearly saw that in 3, 1 through 11. Here, it's whoever believes in him. And often when we use that phrase believe, and we can look at this much further as we go through uh, the book of John, but the reformers called that principle, do you remember, sola fide, sola fide. And it just meant by faith alone. And then they added to that sola gratia, which meant what? Grace alone. Then they had sola Christus, which is Christ alone. And then, of course, sola scriptura, which is the scripture alone. And those are the phrases that they used. But one of the things also that they did is they used different phrases in Latin to describe what faith is to describe what it means to believe. And I'll just, I'll just be brief here, because I think sometimes in our Western world, whoever believes in him, and then we forget to ask, what does it mean to believe? Well, the reformers in the scripture, and I'll show you this in the weeks to come, said saving faith has three components to it. Um, and by the way, you don't have to memorize this. But the first word was the word notia, okay? Notia. Then there was a second word called ascensus, okay? And then a third word called fiducia, okay? And those are the three Latin words that they used to describe what belief was. In other words, belief in the person of Christ first is noticia, which spoke of just knowledge. In other words, if someone's coming to Christ and they're believing in Christ, there is a body of truth there. There is a content there. We certainly know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the message of Christ. That certainly what saving faith is at its most basic element involves noticia, if you will. It involves a certain context about the person of God, about man and his sin, about the person of Christ, about salvation itself. There must be some form of knowledge there. And then you have the word ascensus. That's another Latin term. And ascensus just spoke of assurance. Or there was a conviction to that truth. That there was an inner conviction that the proposition itself, that the content is true. So all of that goes in the word of faith as the noun or the word, the verb is belief. But thirdly, and this was the most crucial one for the reformers. They taught this Latin phrase, fiducia, okay, which meant to trust in and to believe. In other words, they taught this third component that that third component was the most important component because, frankly, you can be a demon on the first two. I mean, even the demons believe and what? Shudder. They have content about God that, at least in the Gospels, was greater than the disciples themselves. Is it now time that you are going to torment us? You can have an understanding of who he is. You are, they said to Jesus, the Holy One of God. In fact, when they got in his presence, they shuddered. They trembled before him. You might even be able to have the first two and be a demon, and we know that the demons aren't saved. And so there was this third aspect in there 
that the reformers taught out of the scripture is belief. But here's the key that you want to understand. It is an act of the will is what it is. In other words, true saving faith and belief not only gets you to the right content, not only is affirmed in your heart, but thirdly, it makes a difference in your will, if you will. Your choosing of Christ. It is a conscious choice. It is a faith, if you will, that commits itself to the Son of Man who was lifted up and crucified. A faith that makes a full commitment to Him. And so it was to believe. Look back in the text again. I don't want you to miss this. And and I don't want to make a big deal out of this. That whoever believes, what does it say next? In Him. You are not saved, and I've shared this before, because of your own faith. You're you're saved because of your faith in Him. He is the direct object. In fact, it might just, can I just stop here for a second? To you high school young men. It doesn't matter what you profess out of your mouth. What matters is your heart and what you're choosing to do with what you know to be true. Anybody can walk an aisle and pray a prayer and sign somewhere with the deacons that they're saved. The utter truthfulness of the expression of your belief will be lived out by the very choices that you are making. But it is not your belief. You're believing in the direct object. And I don't mean to say it that way. But the object is the person of Christ. You are believing in Christ and committing your whole life to him. That he is Messiah. That he is Lord of the universe. And so I'm just trying to explain to you, this is not easy believism here. This is a coming to him. This is a receiving of him. This is a following of him. This is a loving of him. It is to entrust yourself completely to Christ by relying on his promises and devoting our lives to him. And so whoever believes, but the belief is going to demand your entire life. That is the teaching of Scripture. So here is, if you will, the security of our salvation. It is whoever, and then the focus here is believes in him, okay? Now, look down at the text again, and I want to point this out to you. It says in 3.16 that whoever believes in him. In other words, beloved, we've looked at this in the last weeks. No one is excluded from this invitation, It is the free offer of the gospel. And it is wide enough to include the worst of sinners. That's the gospel. And so he's sovereign. Let me, but he opens this gospel up to all. Follow and track this with me just for a second. Look back at John 1, 12. Let me show you the openness of this salvation extended not just to the Jewish people, but to all nations, tribes, and tongues. Do you remember this in John 1, 12? And just look at these phrases. I'm highlighting a few. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You'll note there is the free offer of the gospel. All who did receive him. Now, again, we know in verse 13, the sovereignty of God, they must be born of God. But that gospel and the invitation of the gospel goes out to all. Look over at John chapter 3 and look in verse 36, okay? It says, whoever believes in the Son has, what? 
eternal life. And I'll say something about this in a moment, but that is security. If you trust in Christ, 336, whoever you are, you will have eternal life. Whoever believes. So listen, people are afraid this week at times because of the ISIS situation, the crisis in San Bernardino. People are looking for security. But I'm telling you, from the Word of God, the greatest security is to put your trust and hope and confidence in Him. And if you do that, you have, it says there, eternal life. That is security. Look over at John chapter 5. John chapter 5 in verse 24. A wonderful statement of the words off the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. 524, truly, truly, I say to you, look at that word again, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, what? Eternal life. Now, I'm picking on that phrase there, whoever hears my word. It did not say that only the elect... In other words, you can go back to those opening parts of John 3. They're important. God is absolutely sovereign. But you have statements here. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. There is a gospel that is extended to all. In fact, look at the end of 24. He, if you believe, or she, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to what? Life. Listen, if you're in Christ, you've already been given eternal life. You are experiencing that life now, but also in the age to come. Look over at John chapter 6 in verse 40. He has these statements everywhere. This is a wonderful statement in 640. For this is the will of my Father, and here it is again, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And now this in verse 40. And I, it's a declaration, Jesus says, we'll raise him up on the last day. What a statement there. But you have, this is the will of my Father, everyone who looks on the Son. Glance down to verse 47. Chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And so this isn't just for the Jewish nation. It's not just for the San Joaquin Valley. This is truth of the gospel that ought to go to all of the globe. And we think of our missionaries that are out there passing that truth on. Look over at John chapter 11. You just can't get away from these statements in John. But in John chapter 11, one of the famous famous scriptures, one of the most famous and one of my most loved, when he was talking to Martha... And Jesus said to her in 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Here it is. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he, what? Live. This is the security of our salvation. If you put your hope and trust and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will give you eternal life. And that message goes to the whole globe. Okay, look over at John chapter 12, the next chapter. In John chapter 12, in verse 46, it says there, Does Jesus, I have come into the world as light, 
so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And this message just keeps going. Let me just show you a few more. Look over at Acts chapter 2. Just keep turning right here in that wonderful New Testament that you hold. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, here the apostles are quoting in Acts 2 from the book of Joel 2. But it says there in Acts 2.21, it shall come to pass that everyone, there it is, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love that phrase. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Quoting Joel 2. Look over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. There you're going to find the writers are saying the same thing. In chapter 2, excuse me, in 10 after the Holy Spirit would come just in the next scripture to the Gentiles, but it's speaking in 1043 to him, speaking of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that, here it is, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I mean, this is just the clear teaching of scripture. Maybe one more. Would you look over in the book of Romans Romans chapter 10, there's so much there in Romans 9, 10, and 11 on the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of God to the nation of Israel that he will bring back towards the end of time. But you'll note in, Re- in Romans chapter 10 in verse 4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, and here it is again, to everyone who believes. I love that statement. Look over at 10, 9 and 10, a familiar text to you. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It says in verse uh, 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And now this, for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone. This gospel goes out. So for whoever believes in him, look just down at 10, 12 of Romans. For there's no distinction. Imagine the shock to the Jewish nation. Between Jew and Greek in 10, 12 of Romans. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are Wonderful truths, are they not? J.I. Packer, the great theologian, his book is on sale at the Little Hub afterward, says, as God commands all men everywhere to repent, so God invites all men everywhere to come to Christ for mercy. Packer said the invitation is for sinners only, but for sinners universally. It is not for sinners of a certain type only. He said reform sinners or sinners whose heart has been prepared by a fixed minimum sorrow for sin. He said, but for sinners as such, just as they are, end of quotes. So listen, beloved, the gospel invitation is free. It is unlimited. John the apostle here later in 1 John 5, 1 says, everyone who believes in Christ or believes that Christ has been born of God. Now, watch what happens, though, back in the text, though. Look back at John chapter 3. Here's the wonderful truth. Follow the exposition. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, these last two phrases, okay, should not perish, but have, what? Eternal life. So watch this. Salvation security is going to be stated negatively. Then it's going to be stated positively. But listen, the hope and the promise and the security of your salvation is first stated negatively. You can see it there. Should not perish. In other words, eternal security is given to those who believe, and the promise of God is that you shall never perish. It is a wonderful promise, which is just another phrase to say that you shall never suffer the consequence in hell. If salvation is manifested by eternal life, to reject the person of Christ is to manifest eternal life, if you will, in condemnation. But the trust to you is this. You shall never perish. Look back just for a moment at John 5. Look at the absolute security of your salvation. Here's hope in the day in which we live. And and again, we read it before, but look at it again in a a fresh way. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Here's what Jesus said in 524. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, if you have put your hope in Christ, you do not come into judgment, but you've passed from that judgment into life itself. Look over at the next page at John 6 again. Wonderful statement here. And this is a promise of Christ. In 637, all that the Father gives me. Now, you can stop there just for a second. All that the Father gives to me, that's his sovereignty. He does give particular love those to his son, but we also recognize that he's passionately loving the world. But he says, all that the Father gives to me will come. And now this phrase, whoever comes to me, Jesus said, I will never, what? Cast out. Let me just ask you as you sit there. He can never cast you out. If you're in Christ, and you've placed your faith in Christ, here is the absolute security of your salvation, is that you will never be cast out. Look back again at the text. He said in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Jesus said that I should lose what? nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. Listen, beloved, I'm telling you, the greatest Christmas gift is that God gave his son, that he gave his son in the incarnation, that he gave his son in his crucifixion. And now the security of your salvation is that as you place your hope and confidence in Christ, as you turn away from good works, as you turn away from a self-righteous pattern, as you fall down on your knees, beat your breast and say, God, be merciful to me and place your hope and trust in Christ. Listen, the promise of the word of God is that you shall never perish, that Jesus Christ himself will will never cast you out. That the Father has given to the Son a love gift. He's given you to Christ and He will lose none of you. None of you. 
In fact, he says, I'm going to raise you up on the last day. Look at the text again. Where is that in um, verse 40? He said, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What a great promise. You have eternal life. And in this expression, you'll never perish. So let me just encourage you. You never have to fear. Okay? You say, well, gosh, we live in a crazy world. I know. But you don't have to live in fear of it, do you? Because listen, if you've placed your faith in Christ, he's given you eternal life. Look over at John chapter 10 just for a moment. In John chapter 10... There it says so clearly, and I want you to see this. It's a great statement on our security. Jesus said in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they, here's that continuing belief, the fiducia, if you will, they follow me, and I give them, 1028, eternal life, and they will never, what? Perish. Now listen, I'm just telling you, by the authority of the Word of God, your salvation is secure. If you've placed your hope and confidence in Christ, you will never perish. In fact, look again at 1028. Jesus said, and no one will snatch them out of my, what? Hand. No one's going to take you out of the hand of Christ. He's put you, if you will, metaphorically in the palm of his hand. He's got a lockjaw vice grip on that. And no one is ever going to be able to take you out of his hand. No sin can ever take you so far away that you'll lose it all because God is persevering through you. So here is negatively stating you've got security. You'll never perish. In fact, look at the text again in verse 29, 1029. My father, speaking of you, has given them to me. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Wow. So as you just worship today with us, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, you may not be what you want to be. You may not be what you could be. You may not be what you want to be one day. But listen, you came to Him as a sinner And if you've placed your faith in Christ, you've got security. You'll never perish. And no one's going to take you out of the hand of Christ. And no one's going to take you out of the hand of God the Father. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And if God is for us, then who's against us? Who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also freely give us all things? Who will bring, Paul said in Romans 8, a charge against God's elect? It is, the, it is God who justifies. You understand what he means by that? Who's going to ever bring a charge against you into the tribunal council of God when God himself already declared you righteous? Who is it the one that will condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the what? The love of Christ. Nobody is the thought. 
And then Paul goes on. He's almost in kind of soliloquy form when he says, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he answers it emphatically, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul said, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Listen, you're, you're secure. You're secure because as you placed your faith in Him, whoever you are, and you say, well, pastor, not me. No, I'm saying, why not you? You say, but pastor, you don't know, you don't know what my life is like. In fact, you could even be a believer and you still got guilt from past sins even though he's forgiven you. And you keep beating yourself up for your past sins when he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, you might need to just rejoice in his finished work. You say, well, Scott, I just don't feel forgiven. Remember I told you, it doesn't matter how you feel. If you've placed your faith in Christ and not in your own righteousness, in your own merits, in your own works. I read an article I've shared this with you before, and I don't want to share too much. But remember, the doors are going to open up on the Basilica on Tuesday, December 8th, in Rome. Millions of followers all over the globe will walk through these doors because it's the year of Jubilee. supposed to come every 50 years, quoting out of Leviticus 25. But this particular pope said, we'll have the Jubilee at 25 years. So all you have to do is walk through the door of this basilica and you will receive the forgiveness of all your sins. Listen, I'm just telling you, you don't have to go on a a march to do that. You sitting right now can just confess your need of Christ right now. You don't have to walk through a door. He's the mediator between God and men. No one's ascended up to God and no one's descended except the Son of Man. He's the one that can take you into your presence. And I rest assured, your sins and the assurance of them are not conditioned on some doorway that you walk through. They're conditioned on the blood of Jesus Christ who bought the forgiveness of your sins through his death on the cross. Amen? This is just the greatest news there is. He gives his only begotten Son to come into this world, to die in your place, that whoever you are who believes and trusts and places their faith in him may not perish. And then look at the last phrase, and we're all done. It says there in John three sixteen, and you know it so well, have positively eternal life. Now, now listen, you, you might be a young man here this morning. You say, boy, I, what, what am I going to do? Well, you need to come back in a couple weeks on Christmas Sunday. Because the gospel is going to drive everybody to a fork in the road. You either place your faith in him or you don't place your faith in him. But if you place your faith in him, you have eternal life. Both that begins now, John 17, 3, that you may know him and the life to come. In fact, look at John three thirty six. It's stated in three sixteen three thirty six says, whoever believes in the son has what? Eternal life. And I do remind you this to humble you, to humble my own heart. When it talks about eternal life in Romans 6.23, you know it by heart, that the wages of sin is death, but the free, what? Gift of God 
is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. To think that if you sit here with your sins forgiven, he gave you a free gift. Unbelievable. Here's the source of salvation. It's God, his amazing love. The scope of salvation, he loves the world. The sacrifice of, the, of salvation is he gives his only son. And the security of salvation is you'll never perish but have eternal life. Shortly after the end of the American Civil War, a man in farm clothes was seen kneeling at a gravestone at a soldier's cemetery in Nashville. And an observer came up and asked, is that the grave of your son? And the farmer replied, no. He says, I have seven children, all of them young, and a wife on my poor farm in Illinois. He said, I was drafted, and despite the great hardship that it would cause, I was required to join the army. But on the morning I was to depart, this man, he said, my neighbor's elder, older son came over and offered to take my place in the war. And the observer solemnly asked, what is it that you are writing on his grave? And the farmer replied, I am writing, he died for me. He took his place. His, that, old, that neighbor's son went and died in his place. And he's just saying he died for me. But listen, we know, I'm telling that story as a comparison, that holy God sent his only unique, only begotten, one-of-a-kind son to die in your place for you. How great is that because of the greatness of the giver? Does this come up on the, on the screen? Do you see that? Do we have that, John? Where it says, God, the greatest lover, so loved, the greatest degree, the world, which is the greatest number that he gave, the greatest act, his only son, the greatest gift, that whoever, the greatest invitation, believes the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest person, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. We have a wonderful God, do we not? 